Welcome to the Astrophysics Podcast. All right, let me start by telling you a story about Einstein. Back in 1915, when he first published and promoted his general theory of relativity, he predicted that light should be attracted by gravity. In other words, the path of a light ray should be bent or curved in the presence of a gravitational field, according to Einstein. Specifically, he computed that starlight should be deflected a very small amount when passing by the gravitational field of our sun. In principle, it should be possible to see this effect because it would change the apparent position of stars whose light passed nearby the sun. But in fact, this is a very subtle effect that can only be measured during a solar eclipse. So, in 1919, the astronomer Sir Arthur Eddington actually measured this exact effect during an eclipse, showing that light was attracted by gravity in exactly the way Einstein predicted, which is why we call it the theory of relativity and not the belief of relativity. You might notice that we also don't call it the fact of relativity. This is because, as a good scientific theory, it always has the possibility of being disproven by some new experiment. So when a theory that could always be disproven but isn't disproven and it stands the test of time, it gives us more and more confidence that it is an accurate description of reality. But of course, there is no way to prove a theory true. It can only fail to be disproven. And that's how the scientific method works. In astrophysics, however... Research doesn't always proceed in a perfect, orderly manner of hypothesis to prediction to experiment. The reason for this is, in astrophysics, we are constantly discovering new phenomena that we never expected to see. It seems as though every time we come up with a new way of observing the universe, we discover new astrophysical objects and events that we hadn't predicted at all. So, as a result, observers usually lead the way, while theorists usually spend most of our time trying to explain things we already seen, never mind predicting new things that we haven't even seen yet. And this brings me to my guest today. I am very happy to be joined by Professor Abigail Pollan from the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Purdue University. One of Professor Pollan's most impactful contributions is something I think is pretty unique in astrophysics. Dr. Pollan actually predicted a new type of supernova. That is to say, she calculated that if you were to explode a white dwarf star in a very particular way, it would look very different from any supernova that we had ever seen before. And then, just one year later, astronomers discovered a supernova that matched her predictions precisely. We're going to talk with Dr. Pollan about how stars explode, how she calculates what a supernova will look like, and how she decided to become a scientist in the first place. I'm Paul Duffel, and this is the Astrophysics Podcast. Uh, so, by the way, this, I'll give you a fake intro. All right, uh, and then you're going to do a real one I'll, later. I do a real one in post. It'll be really good. I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to, like, talk about a genius you are and, like... To compare you to Einstein and Please everything. Please don't do that. Okay. We'll see. Are you ready? Probably. Okay. Welcome to the Astrophysics Podcast. I'm Paul Duffel, and my guest today is Dr. Abigail Pollan, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Purdue University. Dr. Pollan, thank you for being on the program. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, I'd like to start things off by asking, um, well, talking about you personally and how you got to be a scientist before we get into the actual science. So let's start by telling me a little bit about where you grew up. Yeah. So I'm from uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's a pretty rural area, uh, about an hour from Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up on a small farm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you weren't. You were, that's not what I think most listeners were expecting when they had an astrophysicist on. That they would. Do, they grew up on a farm. It was a small farm, okay. mostly a hobby farm. We had goats, a lot of goats, so many goats, uh, chickens, geese. At one point, we even adopted a runaway pig. So. Wow. So then, and you were in. That's of course Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's Amish country. It is. It is. It uh, was an Amish pig. You were. It was an Amish pig. But you. The rest of the family was not Amish. No. No. We like to joke that that was the smartest pig ever because it found the only Jewish farmers in Lancaster <laughs> County. So we didn't. So eat it, it ended up being a pet. <laughs> that's nice. So that's great. So you. Were, you. So you grew up on a farm. So you're out. Uh, uh, you're out on, on the farm, and somehow that you turn goes from that to wanting to study astrophysics mm-hmm. uh, eventually at some point in your life. So do you have a, a memory of the first time you knew you wanted to do science or physics or astronomy? So I was always a curious kid. Um, I always really liked math. Mm-hmm. And I think it took me until later than a lot of my peers to realize, ah, aha, physics is kind of the point of all that math I've always really liked. It's like math is the, the language to understanding Yes. How the universe yeah. works. I had the same. I, I, I don't know exactly what point I had that exper- moment. I guess it was uh, like high school. Yeah. And I, I realizing that that uh, that that was what I wanted, like realizing that was what physics was. Like, I think I knew I heard the word physics, but I didn't really know what it meant. Yeah. My first uh, physics class, we didn't even really call it physics. We called it general science. It was the first science class you took in high school. And um it happened to be that it was mostly physics, and it was algebraic physics, but it was, you know, oh, oh, math can explain how things move or how yes. gravity works. It was, it was very cool for me to kind of put it all together. It's, it's empowering in yeah. a way. Like, you get to be like, I can figure out how all these things that are right. in, in, the, in the world are working. Right, and that's, that, you know, that kind of interest can take you for a really long time going, ah, all I have to do is learn how to do the math, and I can understand how anything works. And then it turns out um, there, there is a degree to which we, there are, our fields are complete. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. So, but. yes, okay. like any science, we won't, we, there's always some edge to how far we've gotten it. And, right, and right. Uh, there's some things we Eventually, don't know how to, what the mathematics we need to exactly. explain. Exactly. Eventually, is. our work comes less like a homework problem with an answer. And right, right. A lot but, more like figuring out the math needed to yeah, explain but that's, something. It is an amazing, amazing thing like that fits how physics works and how, realizing that, uh, that moment. And yeah. I, I remember having that same moment myself. Um, but so so that's so that's when you want to do physics. But mm-hmm. what, what about astronomy? You know, that's, that's astrophysics. <laughs> so I had been interested in space, like many kids from a very young age, where I grew up going to uh, going on vacation near family in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, we were lucky enough that at the time, anyways, um, the Outer Banks, these little sandbar islands off the coast of North Carolina. Uh, had so little light pollution that you could see the Milky Way, and that blew my mind. I remember, <laughs> I remember sitting outside with my dad, who's an 
avid photographer. He was taking pictures of the moon. I'm just staring at the sky. Um, wow. And so I was, I was always, I think, interested in space. I also grew up with a lot of societal pressures making me feel like maybe I wasn't supposed to be as interested in those things. <laughs> uh, but then when it, I actually started studying physics uh, seriously, I realized uh, space was kind of a place where I didn't have to choose a type of physics. I could do That's a little true. bit. Astro uh, astrophysics is kind of the everything. best that way. Yeah. You get to, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, you get to do a little fluids, a little quantum. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, nuclear physics mm -hmm. is everything. All, all that stuff happens in, out in space. Yep. Uh, I, I love that aspect of it, too. So um, you mentioned your dad. Um, were your parents big influences on how you became to be a scientist? I think so. Um, both of my parents are very into science. Uh, mm -hmm. They're both very creative people. My dad's a doctor, uh, so obviously that's a little bit STEM-minded right mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. uh, but they've, they both really love science, and they were both very encouraging in that manner, um, even when, or maybe even especially when, like, <laughs> other things were telling me I wasn't supposed to do this. So I remember uh, one summer, I think it was maybe a transition year between middle school and high school, mm. or maybe right before middle school, I can't really recall. Um, my mom found out that our local science museum, the North Museum, was doing these science day camps. Mm -hmm. And she came to me really excited. She's like, oh, I think you should do this. You'd love it. And I crossed my arms and I stomped my feet and I said, no, mom, there becomes an age where girls just don't do science anymore. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and my mom is a great mom and said, oh, no, not my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> And signed me up for every science day camp that museum had all oh, summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so. Wow. So she went the other direction. Yeah. Um, so she was push, pushing back on the societal pressures. Absolutely. Well, that's great. It's good that, you, I mean, that's good they were so supportive, even, over, <laughs> even when you weren't supportive of <laughs> exactly. yourself. Exactly. That's amazing. Um, and so that's great that you had the supportive parents. Um, do you think the experiences you had when you were younger drove you toward astrophysics? I think I found astrophysics personally uh, through a series of trying things as a college student, trying different fields of physics and choosing what the combination of what I thought were the most exciting problems and also what I like doing on a daily basis. Okay, so then maybe we'll start with how did you, you know, eventually decide on physics? We can, I guess in ast you, you came, up, came toward, to astrophysics eventually in college, but mm -hmm. did, when, did you, when did you decide on physics? I think really that first physics class I took in really? ninth grade in high school. Yeah, wow. I, I always had it in my head. Uh, the, the teacher of that class was named Mr. Way, and at the end of the year, he dared us all to continue. He dared us to take AP physics. He said it would be the hardest class we'd ever take in our life, and <laughs> that... Uh, turned out not to be so true. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, teachers you, say that sort of thing sometimes. Well, yeah, especially if you move on to the physics. It's harder than AP physics. Uh, but, right. <laughs> uh, but he dared us all, and I think at that point it kind of stuck in my head of, you've really enjoyed this year, you've really enjoyed this way of thinking and problem solving. You should do that. I, 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 I at that point, had it in my head of, that was the beginning of my trajectory of, I kind of want to try this until I can't anymore. Uh, I think we call that imposter syndrome now. <laughs> but uh, you know, I had 
forever after that trajectory of I will do this until I fail out. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, what you said before about, you know, the idea that physics, you know, other people, it's, it's treated as like this is the hardest science, the, the most difficult science for everyone. And for some people it is. And for a lot of people it is. But... but I, I think that's very personal. Um, yeah. I think we get that reputation because we're very mathy, and uh, math is or is not for people very polarizingly. Mm-hmm. But I don't think physics is harder than any other field you have to put this amount of work into. No. Right? I, I think, probably well, my experience when I was in high school, I found physics to be, to me, easier than like chemistry or biology. I right. Because, because that I felt like I could, it made sense. If once I understood, once I had a handle on all the math, I could, I could. Right. And I think that's because you and I think in a way that's conducive to becoming a physicist, whereas it was just as likely we'd think in a way that's conducive to becoming right. a biochemist. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, because the physics is a sort of pattern of thought. And once you get used to that pattern of thought, it becomes, everything becomes much clearer. Right. It really is like learning a new language of, of once you learn how to speak the language, um, you've kind of overcome this barrier and you have the tools to keep going and keep learning. Okay. So if you got interested in physics in high school, then mm-hmm. somehow in college, you got interested in astrophysics. Yeah. Yeah. And that was through uh, a series of research projects. Uh, I actually didn't start in astrophysics. I started in um, soft matter physics, studying granular okay. materials. All right. You're going to have to explain what yeah. soft matter physics means. Yeah. Uh, well, soft matter is uh, matter, matter that, that's not so hard. Matter that's soft. <laughs> but, uh, that's me, not a bad description, by the way. It, it, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not very useful, Things though. that are not solids, not liquids. Right. For me, that meant grains, so like sand. Okay. Um, and I started my first research project was in understanding how granular materials moved when we do things like shake them or shear them back and forth. Um, and how, if you imagine you could take uh, a microscope and look at the shape of all your little particles of sand, how the geometry of that shape affected that kind of movement. Okay, that's very yeah. interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this. I love this science, too. It, it's not astrophysics, uh, but I love that idea, like, you know, how we have equations describing how solids behave, and we have equations describe how liquids behave. We don't really have good equations describe how something like sand behaves, right. which I, is kind of incredible. Well, you know? the whole field started because I believe it was Reynolds was trying to understand fluid flow, and he made a model using essentially marbles mm-hmm. and found that, oh, this doesn't behave like a fluid at all, <laughs> like not even qualitatively, <laughs> because grains do something called uh, dilation that fluids don't. So basically there's friction in between each granular particle. That means when we try to put forces on them, they tend to expand instead of contract. Okay. Um, so you can see this if you picture yourself walking along the beach on that damp sand that, you know, waves have just w- walked over. Mm-hmm. You'll notice the footprints you leave behind are dry. And, oh, wow. Right. And that's because when you step on that sand, you're exerting a force and the friction between the granular particles are causing that sand to expand. That's, 
That's incredible. Yeah, yeah so the, the water's going down and filling the space in between the grains yeah. and leaving a dry footprint. That's so funny. It's one of those things that you see like all the time and don't even think about. Right, uh, right That's exactly. how physics is, right? Yep. Is you, <laughs> is, 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 there's explanations for these things right. sometimes. And for me, that was a great way of getting started because mm-hmm. for an undergrad, it was a tabletop experiment. It was really fun. It was something that I could understand all parts of while still needing to learn some of the fundamentals of perhaps why things behave like this. Right. Right. I could study cause and effect pretty easily. Right. Right. Uh, And it was a blast. Um, But I also learned that I probably didn't want to be spending my daily life uh, in a laboratory in that kind of setting. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. It was fun, but it, it wasn't it wasn't the thing that motivated me. Okay. So from that point, I tried a number of different other undergraduate research projects that stretched anywhere from like a year through to a summer mm-hmm. um, to try to figure out what I liked doing with my everyday. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then eventually, what you landed on astrophysics as the thing that. Well, I landed on computer coding, honestly, of, okay. of simulations. As the thing that day-to-day you that could day-to-day do. That day-to-day I like doing, and astrophysics were, I think, the coolest problems I could find to solve with that kind of day-to-day. So is that when you felt like, when did you really feel like you started to learn how to be scientist? Like think Throughout that scientist. process. So, so Throughout that process of learning what research is like. Okay, so that would have been, you know, as an undergrad, trying Older different undergrad, things out. Yeah. Okay. And obviously I still had far more to learn. Some of the <laughs> yeah. things I thought of how the world worked doesn't actually work that way. Yeah. It's an entire process and I'm sure I'm still learning today. I don't feel like but. I learned how to be a scientist until about my third year of grad school. I started to realize like, oh, there's a, you know, there's a way is of... It? Is it through the same process though? Was it because that's when you were really heavily getting involved in the day-to-day of research instead of the coursework? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's exactly right because the coursework you don't it's not it's not really about coursework isn't doesn't really isn't really science exactly because you're not going through the process right. of you know figuring out how to set up the problem right. that will ans- answer it's more your a question. four to eight year process of learning <laughs> the tools you need to understand yeah. those inquiries yeah it, it is interesting how that is with coursework we spend all this time teaching coursework which is you know obviously important background material for students to learn but it's not Exactly. It's not science, really. You're not teaching them, you know, the scientific method, really. You're, you know, we try to have labs and stuff for that. But even that, it's hard because we've set up the lab. We already told right. them how they get the answer. Right. Any time that we fundamentally already know what the answer is, is not actually replicating the day-to-day of what scientists do. Right. Yep. Right. Exactly. That's very interesting. Um, so you're saying you learned how to be a scientist uh, by trying out different, sci- like, projects like this, uh, right. like the soft matter. Right. Uh, I jumped from soft matter into the next thing I tried was um, kind of a data-based project mm-hmm. on gravitational waves uh, working with the pulsar time okay. array. Uh, and and then, that, you must have enjoyed that to some extent well, since, yes. it's, uh, since that's astrophysics. That kind, yes, that set the trajectory into, ah, I find these astronomy problems more interesting. Uh, actually, I was really, really obsessed with gravitational waves there for a couple of years. Uh, so I did 
uh, project with Pulsar Timing. Mm-hmm. I did a project with uh, LIGO while we were building Advanced LIGO in Louisiana. Oh, this is before that we actually detected anything. Correct. With it. Both of these were before we'd ever detected a right. gravitational and wave. And now both of those have success. Yeah. All yeah. thanks to you as a grad student, no. I'm sure. No, but it is really cool to see. Um, how quickly these things change, yes, right? That these is inc- things that when I was publishing my first papers, referees were saying are fiction. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> this is all fantasy. We won't. Right, you know, who right. knows if we'll see this in our lifetime? Right, exactly. Okay, well, um, so all right, so I, I didn't want to get into <laughs> gravitational waves and things. I, right. I, I, I know that that that's a whole different. I can say field. one more thing if okay. I could. Yeah. Of, yeah, I think though the important thing was through that process. I finally landed on astrophysics by deciding, ah, I'm far more interested about the things creating these gravitational waves than I am in being a person who has to be the one to detect them. Right. So in other words, that pointed you in the direction of theory rather than uh, experiment or observation. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Okay. So that's how you sort of decided theory was Mm -hmm. was the thing you were interested in. so, okay, so we can skip ahead past all of the postdocs <laughs> and everything, uh, but now now you're an astrophysicist. Sure. Uh, and so what are some of the things that you like the most about your job? Yeah, well, I still feel like I'm figuring that out. Uh, so I just started a faculty position, which you kind of feel like is the, the end of the trajectory in some ways, <laughs> but I still very much feel like I'm just starting. Right, um, that's right, yeah. But um, several things motivate me. Obviously, the science motivates me, especially when it can get exciting. And for me, that feels like when theory interfaces with what's actually happening in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on a more day-to-day basis, uh, yeah. what motivates me is the people. Mm-hmm. I love talking about science with people. Mm-hmm. I love uh, getting to help the next generations of scientists mm-hmm. feel that same kind of excitement and build that that same toolbox. So when you say people, you mean you, it's a sort of cross between you know some some of the people stuff is going to conferences and talking to other scientists about research and what they're mm-hmm. doing and getting and keeping up with people, having a, like a network of a community. Right. But then what you were just saying uh, also separately. Being a, an advisor, a teacher, yes. mentor of, yeah, absolutely. of students. I, being able to teach reminds me of those years when you're just sitting in the classroom for the first time realizing this all is cool, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you get, to, you get lucky, to relive that again. Yeah, I was lucky to have really great teachers in college, and I really hope to be able to be that for students now. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything you don't like about your job? No one likes debugging. <laughs> no, of course. <laughs> yeah, some days that's how it goes, right? Uh, yeah. I know that for sure. But, uh, but uh, you know, anything else? like? So my field in particular, I think, can get very competitive mm-hmm. um, in ways that I don't think are necessarily actually needed. Right. Uh, and, th- and that can be... Trying that can right. be really. We're all in the hard same boat. You. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're trying to figure out what these yeah. things are going on yeah. out in space. But I've never understood this need that oh, only the first person to do it is worth. If you can't be first, it's not worth doing. Right, right, right. It, and especially if you're working on 
uh, explosive things like supernovae, mm -hmm. things that are only in the sky for a short period We're of time. We're all racing to be the first to understand something that's visible for a very short amount of time. Right. So that sort of creates a competitiveness. Yeah. It, it can, yes. I think, I think there's a lot of us who are devoted to trying to turn things to being more collaborative, mm -hmm. especially in this era where we're discovering so many transients, even per night, right. that there is no one person who can do it all. Right, right. We, we do need to communicate I mean, with each There's nothing wrong more. with a little healthy competition. Right. But, uh, it's just when it goes to the extreme that it can, it can yes. be hard. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's no, and you know, sometimes you just get, it's, I understand it can be exhausting Mm -hmm. have, being in an argument with someone who is much more willing to argue about this for a much longer period of time than you are, <laughs> uh, that, that, can be, that can be an unpleasant part of the job. I mean, you know, partly why, you know, we're all here because we're excited about it. And so we, you know, we push hard and, and sometimes that ends up creating right. that. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, so what would you say, this is very similar to what I've asked already, but mm -hmm. would you say there's anything that motivates you, like what motivates you the most in your professional life? Like what gives you the energy to work on these hard problems, you know, gets you out of bed and, yeah. you know. Well, we're in a really exciting time for what I do. Um, so we're, I think we're going to talk more in detail about what I do later. Yes. Yeah. But, <laughs> Don't worry. But surface level, I work on supernovae and we're in an era where we're discovering more than we ever have before. And we're about to see new telescopes. Uh, for example, the Vera Rubin Observatory is about to mm -hmm. come online. Um, and we're yep. going to go from seeing possibly like 10,000 supernovae to a million per year. Right. But right, so it's a really exciting time to do what I do because we are discovering so many supernovae so many things we'd never dreamed of uh, and it's just this giant pool of information that we have to work with um, uh, as a theorist I, I have so many questions arising every day that I couldn't possibly answer them all grad student or a fellow scientist and they ask you what you work on, what do you tell them? I tell them that I am a transient theorist. Okay, so transient theorist. So transient meaning what? <laughs> <laughs> meaning things that happen for a short amount of time. Okay. So uh, the most common one you'd think of is a supernova. Okay, so, uh, but there are other types of transients like gamma ray bursts mm -hmm. and tidal disruption events and things. But FRBs, etc. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but for, if, for our listeners, there are at least two of whom exist. Uh, <laughs> my, my parents are definitely listening. Again, we'll see how... <laughs> Four, my parents as well. <laughs> okay. At least in this episode, we'll have four listeners. Yeah. Um, but in any case, for the listeners, uh, yeah. Tr so you can think of supernovae when you think of when you think transient. Right. But what I mean by that is just something that's visible for a short amount of time. Okay. And theorist meaning that, what? How would you define theorist? I try to study the sources of these from a fundamental physics perspective, and normally that would look like. Um, modeling these events instead of observing them in the sky. Okay, so you have, in astrophysics, we have theorists and we have observers, mm -hmm. mainly. 
um, and the the and the observers see the thing. They look through the telescope and then they see the event right. going off, and they take data. Mm-hmm. And then theorists are you know basically explaining the data or building models that uh, right. or make a prediction, hopefully. Hopefully, sometimes. Um, okay, so then, um, what does your research look look like? What is the sort of day to day tasks that are involved? Right. You, me- you mentioned debugging. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of debugging. <laughs> so what I do is very coding heavy. I, I run uh, simulations of astrophysical explosions. Both uh, This kind of works in two steps. Mm-hmm. So we can run a simulation of what a supernova would look like and get a model that tells you this properties of the exploded stars, things like the velocity and temperature okay. and the composition of the ejecta. All right, let's slow down a minute. Yeah. Uh, so when you say simulation, yep. you mean uh, you have a computer code that yes. you've... That you, that, uh, I've tried to teach some laws of physics to. Okay, so you in the, the, the computer program will have a bunch of laws of physics in it, mm-hmm. and you will tell it, uh, set up uh, some... As- initial setup mm-hmm. and you exp- like a star that explodes and right and and I ask how would the consequences of this ignition evolve okay so you so you you blow up the star on the computer yeah. not in real life <laughs> you do it on the computer but then you check then then you see what it, the consequences are how fat you said the velocity you mentioned the velocity how fast mm-hmm. it is it moves okay. um, you know a temperature what composition it is so what elements it's made out of oh, okay sure and then I do a second thing as well, and I think this is the bigger motivation or what allows me to make a lot of progress uh, is I do something called radiative transport modeling. Okay, radiative transport modeling. Right. And so that's taking the end state of one of those computer simulations, our theory of what we think an explosion would look like. Okay, just to, okay, go on. <laughs> and, and I'm gonna, ex- don't worry, I'm gonna explain all this. <laughs> I'm gonna, right. We're gonna go back over it right. in a second. So we take the theory and we tr- use a number of other simulated physical properties to translate that theory into what it would look like if we saw it through one of our telescopes. Okay, so what you're saying, you're, as you, like, let's clarify it for a second, backing up and digging mm-hmm. into it. Uh, we have, um, you, you have, basically it's a two-stage process. Mm-hmm. One stage is blow up the star using the physics of explosions, of uh, yep. fluid dynamics. Exactly. And, and you watch what happens, what that exploded thing looks like. But mm-hmm. that's not what it looks like to... Right, because we can't go stand next to a star that exploded and measure how hot it is. Nor do we want to. No, um, probably not. <laughs> I mean, it would be exciting for very briefly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, 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 you, so you, instead of... Uh, so what an, what an observer right. what would see... What we observe is the photons that are released from that explosion that go through a bunch of physical properties, like being absorbed and re-emitted by different chemicals elements on their way to us. So in other words, when, when they look into your telescope, they see this light, this flash of light, or mm-hmm. this, you know, brightening of light. Exactly. And you know, it's, you know, this point of light on the sky, and how, what can we learn from that, you right. know? And so the, the only way we can learn something is if we build an extra model that tells us what the light would look like. Precisely. And so in this way, we can actually say um, what features of the supernovae that where, what these observed features are, what that means for what's out there, those hot balls of gas. Okay. So, you, you, so, so it's a, obviously a lot of physics involved there. Um, uh, and in, in order to do these, both of these stages, mm-hmm. um, and in order to understand how light you know, propagates th- through a star and, right. then, and then all the way to a telescope, 
um, and understanding you know how to relate the, the relate that to the physical properties of the explosion. Uh, that's obviously a lot <laughs> going on. <laughs> but so then, then the day-to-day tasks involved, you know, involved, I guess, a lot of just running your code and... A uh, lot of coding, a lot of running the code, and then a surprising, and this was surprising to me, at least while starting out, large amount of data analysis. Mm-hmm. Even though my data is simulated data, mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot of data statistics that you perform to understand the results of your right. simulated experiment. That's the yeah yeah, that's right. That's 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 the big piece that's extremely important is being able to make sense of it. It's all well and good to just explode a star and say, "Look, this happened." Right. It makes a really really cool looking picture, but <laughs> we want to be able to understand it. Right. And even better is if you can figure out how to set up the problem from the beginning that you will get some mm-hmm. some results that will be useful. Yes, absolutely. I actually think that simulations for me, I set them up like experiments. And maybe this is going back to my first dipping my toes into physics was a tabletop experiment. Mm-hmm. But I set up simulations very much like I have this parameter space of... Um, independent independent variables where I change one thing mm-hmm. at a time and right. ask what is the effect of changing that one thing at a time. Right. You have you have your own knob. Mm-hmm. You know, in the universe we don't necessarily have that knob, but you do. But because I do. because you, you're you're making this simulation on the computer so you have right. this knob that you're allowed to change. Right. So just asking very simply like for example, if I change the mass of the star that's exploding by a little bit, mm-hmm. how does that change the features we get to observe? Right. So that's very powerful because you can't do that in it. You can't just say, well, back that supernova up again and just do a little bit more massive star. Right. Uh, you can't do that in, 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 you know, as an observer. Right, uh, you exactly. Can, you, but you can do that sort of thing if you simulate it on the computer. And hopefully that will allow us to take our observations and work backwards and understand, say, again, what the mass of that star that exploded right, was. Right, if you do a whole bunch of different explosions with different masses, then maybe you may be able to relate the, the two together. Precisely. What would you say was your most impactful contribution? What work are you most proud of in your professional career? During my PhD thesis, we made a prediction of what a really specific type of supernova would look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time, that type of supernova was entirely theory. We didn't know whether or not they happened in the real world. Um, so, okay, so there was a, a type of supernova that you predicted, uh, or that, sorry, explain this again. There, right. you, there was a, you, you, you made a prediction for a spe- particular right. type of supernova. Exactly. So we, we made a prediction of what it would look like if a white dwarf exploded uh, through the aid of a very thick accreted helium shell, if you want to get okay. more specific. All right. So we'll have to we'll have to define a few terms. So what is a white dwarf, first a of all? A white dwarf uh, is the cold, dead core of a star. We, we like to call them stars, but they're not really. They're uh, not they're, really stars. They're the leftover insides of stars as we actually think of them if you think of the sun. So when the sun dies, it will leave behind a white dwarf that because it doesn't have a binary companion, we'll just sit there cooling off forever. Okay, so it's not, um, so the sun, uh, so the sun won't explode at the end of its life, and instead it mm-hmm. will, it will sort of um, uh, leave behind this white dwarf star. Right. That's just sitting there. So what's the difference, what's the white, what's the difference between the white dwarf and what the sun is now? Well, stars, like the sun, support themselves through fusion at their cores. So, 
uh, something has to keep a star up, right? Mm -hmm. um, gravity is pulling all of that gas towards the center. Mm -hmm. Something has to be pushing back against mm -hmm. it so the whole thing doesn't just squish down and collapse. Right. Um, for normal stars, that's fusion. So um, taking hydrogen and then burning it to helium, helium into carbon, carbon into oxygen, that process gives back some pressure that fights against gravity. Okay, so nuclear fusion creates, uh, it makes it hot in the core of the, the deep in, in the interior of the star and that uh, heat uh, provides pressure support that keeps the star right. alive. But with a white dwarf, that's not true. With a white dwarf, that's not true. There's no longer any fusing going on. Uh, that part of the star's life is over. There's nothing to fuse, well. Um, that part of the star's life is over. Um, <laughs> there's, no, there's no more fusion no going more on. No more fusion going on. It's uh, used up basically the fuel that it would have used yes. to fuse. And so it leaves behind this ball of, um, normally the ones I think about are a mix of carbon and oxygen, but they can also come in helium or oxygen, yeah, magnesium okay. flavors. And it depends on what star it came from originally, exactly. whether, it was whether it got hot enough to fuse helium into carbon or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Um, but at this point, what's common in all of these white dwarfs is there's no more fusion going on, so you need something else to support pressure, or to give pressure that um, fights off gravity. Uh, and what happens is, because we're not fusing, uh, these cores become really, really compact. Okay. But they don't completely just collapse. They don't completely just collapse, because eventually we reach something, uh, a point where all of the atoms are close enough to each other that we can support these white doors by something called electron degeneracy pressure. Electron degeneracy pressure. Yes, and that's when electrons get close enough to each other that they don't like occupying the same space, so they'll push back against each they other. They don't like occupying they the same space. They don't, it's just a fundamental nature of electrons. So it's sort of like, uh, well, so this is, a, this is actually a much deeper thing. It's a quantum mechanical mm -hmm. effect that electrons don't want to get too close to each other. I told you, Astro has everything. Astro has everything. That's <laughs> yeah. true. So it's the same, actually, it's the same thing that, for example, in an atom that keeps all of the electrons from occupying the same orbital, right. uh, they, they, they don't want to be in the same space, at the same level as each right. other. So it's not quite the same thing, but you can almost think of it as like trying to push together two of the same sides of a magnet, right? They're going to push back. Right, but magnetism is a more conventional Right. force that we don't is, we right. don't think these of these are fundamental particles right 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 these are fundamental particles that are just that they just can't occupy the same space so they have they creates so quantum mechanics right and purely my, creates a, it purely creates a force that just keeps the star you, you don't need yeah. any you don't need any like it can be as cold as you want you don't exactly. need any thermal Mind -blowingly, pressure all it is is this quantum fact that electrons repel each other okay and that's supporting so this, the pressure that's fighting gravity so in this these white, white dwarfs. So this white dwarf star could be as cold as you want. It can yep. it can cool down, be really, really cold, but it's right. still, it, it still won't. And if they're arising from single stars like our sun, they will just cool off ad infinitum forever. Forever. So it's sort of like where it's, that's where stars go to retire. Yeah. Okay. So now, all right, so I explained a white dwarf. Uh, so, so this, so this type of explosion is a is a is an explosion of a white dwarf star, right? Uh, or white dwarf, if you don't want to call it a star, um, and uh, but it's a particular way of exploding it, right? So white dwarfs, we know that they can explode if they exist 
with a companion star, so what we call a binary system. Okay. Um, and typically we think of white dwarfs explosions because we think that they are the source of type 1A supernovae. Okay, so type 1A supernovae are, so there's a particular type of supernova. Right. First of all, there's different types of supernovae. There are. Uh, but, so type 1A is one example of a type of supernova, yes. and it's an exploded white dwarf Explosion star. of a white dwarf. Um, but we theorists uh, argue about exactly the details beyond that, how a white dwarf explodes, at what mass, etc. Okay. Um, and so that's the problem that I studied in my thesis, was mm-hmm. um, details of how these 1As could be exploding. saying that white dwarfs can explode by this thing called a type 1a supernova yes and let's explain what that mm-hmm. is or legally let's explain what the standard picture of a type 1a supernova is okay so historically uh we thought that type 1a supernovae because they all look very similar to each other uh, must be happening in similar systems and the way we thought that this could work is it turns out that that electron degeneracy pressure we were talking about mm-hmm only can support a white dwarf up to a point, up okay. to a certain weight limit. Up to a certain weight limit. So yes. once it gets too massive, even quantum mechanics can't support, can't keep the star from collapsing or right. f- from getting uh, more... Right. Com- the- and so that weight limit, we call it the Chandrasekhar mass limit. Chandrasekhar it's mass. happens at about 1.4 solar masses, so 1.4 times the mass of the sun. Okay, 1.4. Yes. So for our sun, when it makes a white dwarf, it won't be able to, it, it won't It won't be too massive. Right. It's going to be uh, maybe the mass well, of the sun. Well, it has to be less than the mass of the sun. It'll be less than the mass of the sun. So maybe the sun will lose some of its envelope and leave behind a mm-hmm. white dwarf, and that will be less than 1.4 solar masses. So it's good. It can be so a white dwarf. It, so it can, it can stay support forever. Itself. It can be supported. Right. But if it had a binary companion, mm-hmm. We can have a process called binary accretion, where that white dwarf starts to take some of the mass from its companion and starts to grow in mass. Okay, so the, the companion can donate mass to the other star. Yes. And, uh, and so if it donates too much mass, you can reach this weight limit. Um, okay, so then it can get up to 1.4 right. times and the mass so, of the sun, the Chandrasekhar mass limit. Right. So originally we thought that type 1A supernovae happened when these white dwarfs reached around that mass limit and they can't support themselves via this electron degeneracy pressure anymore and they explode. Okay. Um, this gets to a different question I had, which mm-hmm. is normally, you know, this is a common thing people say is that a star can no longer support itself and it collapses uh, and then you get a supernova. Right. But that's a little weird because in a, cl- a collapse we think of as an implosion. So how do you get an explosion from that? At that point... Uh, the inside starts getting hot. It gets hot. So, so it's it, getting hot. So it doesn't completely collapse. It doesn't just completely no. uh, fall, but it, it does It starts sort of getting hot. It starts undergoing burning processes, and there's a number of ways that can trigger slow-scale burning process into being a thermonuclear explosion. Okay. So that's what we put in our textbooks. That's what we teach students as the source of type 1A supernovae. Um, but over the years, we've had trouble 
explaining the full breadth of this type of supernovae with that model. Okay. So what do you mean by that? In other words, uh, it, it, so this there, model can, if you, if you were to do that on your computer, if you were to explode a white dwarf star at uh, the Chandrasekhar mass, you could get something that looks like a type 1a? You could, but you'd have trouble getting something that looks like every type of type 1a that we see. I see. So, so there is some variation in what we see in the sky. I see. So that's an interesting point because the actually that sort of makes sense because if they're always exploding at, at exactly the same mass, you can imagine it could be tricky to get the right. amount of diversity we see. So traditionally we looked at that one way of blowing up white dwarfs because we really, we thought, ah, oh, if there is this tight relationship, then they must all be very similar explosions. Okay, and so then it makes sense that they all exploded exactly 1.4 solar right, masses. Right, exactly. Uh, however, over time, and a lot of this is to do with the fact that technology and telescopes have improved such that we've observed a lot more type 1a supernovae, um, there seems to be a lot more variation than we had initially hoped. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot harder to standardize these candles than we initially thought. Okay. And that opened the door to, well, maybe then there's more than one way that these explode. Okay. So then maybe that's not, maybe that, maybe that, that picture is not complete. always complete. Maybe, maybe sometimes they explode that way, but maybe there are other ways to explode a white dwarf star. Right. Or at least I hope so. <laughs> uh, I think so. Um, and I think the field at this point mostly agrees that there's probably more than one, a to, one way to explode a white dwarf to get something that looks like a type 1a supernova. Okay, so then to summarize, type 1a supernovae are, are generally, under, oh, I guess the, the general consensus is that it is an exploded white dwarf star, mm -hmm. but the exact way you explode it right. might be different, and maybe, more, maybe some people disagree about how, how many of them explode by a particular mechanism. Right, exactly. Um, so what I studied was a way of exploding these white dwarfs before they reach that mass limit that they can't move past. Okay, so, so not they they're not they haven't reached the Chandrasekhar mass, but they still explode somehow. Correct. Okay, so how does that work? Uh, through something we call a double detonation mechanism. Okay. And this idea is not new. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea was first proposed in the 1980s. Um, kind of at the same time in Japan by Ken Emoto and in the U.S. by Stan Woosley. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea is, if in that binary system we have a white dwarf that's eating mass from its companion, mm -hmm. if that mass is helium, okay. it can form a shell of helium on the outside of the white dwarf. Okay. And it turns out helium's much easier to ignite than carbon or oxygen. All right. Uh, so you can get an initial helium detonation in that shell of accretive material. Okay. And then what happens is the helium burns all around the outside of the white all right. dwarf. So hang on, I got to build the mental picture in my uh -huh. head. You've got a shell of helium. You have a white dwarf star, and it's made out of what carbon and carbon oxygen. Carbon and oxygen. Outside of it, kind of like a gobstopper. Okay. Is a, a is it, candy coating of a helium. thin candy shell, shell of helium mm -hmm. on the outside, and right. then you set that on fire. Right. You, you burn set that it. on fire. You, <laughs> you detonate it. You detonate it. Uh, th so it's a not just on fire. It's a nuclear thermonuclear explosion. Right. And so that will burn starting from the initial point around the outside of the white dwarf. Okay. And while that's happening, it sends a shock wave 
from the outside of the white dwarf into the core, okay. a spherical shock. So kind now of. I'm picturing a ball on fire. The outside is on fire. <laughs> That's the helium burning. But then you also drive a shock wave inward, sort of a spherical shock wave inward towards the center. Right. Uh, and when that shock wave converges, it can compress and heat up enough of that carbon oxygen to ignite it and get that to detonate. So that's your second detonation. Okay, so then you have a second detonation in the core mm -hmm. or near the core. And then you get your thermonuclear runaway and then, in a normal supernova. Then it will look a lot more like a type 1A because, right. because it's exploded from the center. And but we needed a creative way of doing that central detonation without reaching that mass limit that okay. we were talking about before. Okay, so at the time, I guess when you were talking about Stan Lusley and Ken Nomoto, mm -hmm. this, was, this was a creative idea they had. This was a creative idea they had, uh, but when they worked out the process, it didn't look like that typical type 1A supernova we're looking for. Okay, when you say work out the process, you mean like they actually, they did They, a, they modeled it. They did a computer simulation. They did a computer simulation of it, and it didn't look like a type 1A supernova, so we kind so of this benched was, it. This was in the 80s? This was in the 80s, and it turns out the problem was two things. Um, mostly technology. Uh, so there's a little bit of a technological issue of mm -hmm. the computer resolution that we could have at the time. Right. And there was a second issue with we were missing a little bit of information about the nuclear physics. Mm -hmm. But together, that meant that they could only get this system work to work, this second detonation to work, if we started with a very large amount of helium on the surface of the white dwarf. I see. So what's, what's wrong with that? You have this big, mm -hmm. really big shell of helium, and it blows up the star just well, fine. As you might imagine, that burnt layer of helium on the outside of the ejecta leaves a, a visual imprint on the supernova that would happen. Okay. Um, it creates some radioactive material that releases some photons early on, earlier than we'd expect if it weren't there. And it's also like a cloud of ash that blocks some of the light coming from the inner explosion from reaching us. Okay, so when you think, let me, just to see, you have this supernova that's gone off mm -hmm. from by burning this, on the outside has this, right. these helium ashes, all this burnt helium on the outside, and then it explodes. The whole thing flies outward, and the helium, the burnt helium is still on the outside. Mm -hmm. And then when we look at it, you need this extra step where we figure out what the light looks like. Right. The light has to go through this, this helium right. ash. And it turns out very quickly in the 80s, we could say, ah, that's going to cause a feature that we don't see in type 1A supernova. Okay, so it doesn't look like a type 1A. It doesn't it's look very like a distinct. type 1A. Okay, we could tell that it what didn't, wouldn't look like a type 1A. Right. So the, the problem was kind of set aside for a while. Okay. But then in the mid-2000s, um, the problem was picked up again uh, because a group at Santa Barbara, so Lars Bildstein and Ken Shen, mm -hmm. um, said, hey, but there's this other burning process, this other way, this other step that mm -hmm. we were missing in understanding how the nuclear physics works of mm -hmm. helium burning, um, that along with the ability to uh, have the computational needs of a higher resolution, so a more detailed calculation, mm -hmm. um, meant that you could get this double detonation mechanism to happen with not a lot of helium on the surface of the white dwarf. of the field when I stepped in. Mm -hmm. um, 
it looked like this could be some type 1a supernovae. It could, if there's small enough helium on the surface, uh, a large amount of helium just doesn't look like a type 1a. Mm-hmm. And so my thesis was re-examining this problem in detail. Okay. Of, okay, but how much helium is allowed to be there before it stops looking like a type 1a supernova? And because I was interested in the problem of these stars exploding less than I was about only type 1a supernovae. Mm-hmm. Also, what would it look like if there was a lot of helium on the surface? Okay, so you were, you were just looking at it, like you said earlier, uh, from an experimental point of view. Right. You're just saying, you weren't asking, the, you weren't trying to get a type 1a specifically. No. no, I had two variables in my project that I wanted to tune, and that was what happens when I change the mass of the white dwarf, and what happens if I change the amount of helium on the surface of it? And so you were just looking at it from a purely mm-hmm. agnostic yep. perspective of just what would happen. Right. And then after the fact, you can ask what it, whether we see it in nature. But, right. But, but, for, but for the moment, you just said, okay, right. this, is, this is what it would look like if this exploded. Right. And my results agreed with people who came before me that there is a space with a small amount of helium on the surface that do look like type 1a supernovae as we think of the normal ones. Mm-hmm. But I think what has been more impactful was that region beyond what we thought could explain the mm-hmm. normal supernovae, that area with a large amount of helium on the surface, so much that we knew this doesn't look like the supernovae we know and right. love. So these were the models that the, the thick helium shells, these were the models that were already shelved a long time ago. They were like basically like we didn't, we did, you know, it's why, not a type why bother? Supernova. It's not a we're type done with it. So why bother? But you were saying, well, let's. It, hey, there's we, no reason these shouldn't exist. Right. We know that the binary systems that would create this system exist in nature. We've seen them. Right. So if a double detonation can work to explode a white dwarf, mm-hmm. we should see those too. Okay. So you were saying, why not just run them, see what they look like. Right. Um, and let's do a good job of it. Make sure we're getting using all of the uh, <laughs> all of our modern technology and and doing this right. uh, really precisely to say to make a very clear prediction. This is what exactly it would look like. Right. Um, and so we predicted what what that would look like in detail. And mm-hmm. so these are the thick helium shells. So yes. just to clarify, just to go, get go, get back into context, you had done the thin helium shelves, and they mm-hmm. looked like looked like regular. They do type look 1As. like regular type one A supernovae. So that's different from these Chandrasekhar mass explosions, which right. also look like type one A supernovae. Right. And I think the field is now arguing over how many type 1a supernovae come from which channel. Right. <laughs> but then, so now the, the thick helium shells, Right. these ones don't look like type 1a's. They don't look like type 1a supernovae, and at the time that I was modeling them, they didn't look like anything we had seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, we're living in a really exciting time of supernovae discovery. Yes. So around 2018, I went to a conference and gave a talk on my work and what I was working on, mm-hmm. and included the thick helium shells, mm-hmm. um, even though they're not type 1a supernovae, so Just not everybody sh- cares about them. <laughs> but you still said, this is what it would look like. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, a graduate student from Caltech, Kishle Day, came up to me and he says, I have an object you need to see. Okay. And he showed me observations of a supernova that had just gone off uh, that looked exactly what we would expect from a thick helium shell. So it looked exactly like what you had already just shown. Just right, shown what I just in shown talk. in my talk. <laughs> um, pretty astoundingly, just like it. 
Uh, so we spent all afternoon comparing models, uh, figuring out what we needed to do where in that grid of white dwarf masses and helium shell masses, we would have to run a custom model for this event. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the end of the day, I was fully convinced that this, this is what we were seeing. We were seeing... It was just un, uh, unambiguous. Unambiguous. And to date, um, this is the most direct evidence we have that there is more than one way of exploding a white dwarf, that this double detonation mechanism can and does explode white dwarfs. Because to date, there is no competing theory that can create something that looks like this supernova. I see. So what you're saying is there there certainly could be different things that make the regular 1As, but for certain, we know that this, you know, These oddballs. Th- this is not really, this is no, it's, it's too unambiguous that it's not even debated what that, 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 that your models make the, these thick helium shelves are what make, um, but by the way, this t- particular type uh, that well, Kishalay <laughs> detected, have there been others? There have been. There have been a handful of others, and now we call them after this first initial one, which was 2018 BYG. So they're 18 BYG like supernovae, because we're great at naming okay, things. Okay, so the, the, the supernova he showed you was called 21, 2018 BYG. Yep. And you remember that well. Uh, yeah. You remember the, the letters. Uh, when I started this field, so we name supernovae every year we start with, so the first one this year was 2023 A, and then we keep going down the alphabet, and then we go AA, mm-hmm. AB, and I think we're in the U's right now currently as we're recording this in <laughs> October. Um, and at the beginning of my process learning supernovae and becoming a supernova scientist, I thought people who could keep track of these things were insane. And <laughs> but now, now I'm you're, one of you're them. You're one of them. <laughs> You remember all the all the letters, but anyway, twenty of course twenty eighteen BYG you'll remember forever well, yes, because that, that was that the one that that matched that was your the one predictions. That matched our predictions. So uh, and then um, and so um, and there's been a, there's been what do you said like six or approximately six yeah a handful more of them that now look like this uh, and it's really lent a lot of credence in believing that this mechanism can explode a white dwarf therefore we should really pay attention to the subtler ones with only a little bit of helium on the surface. Okay, and so right, if a thick shell of helium can explode a white dwarf, then presumably the thin shell ones may explain... May also happen. May also happen, and they may be an explanation for at least some type 1As that we see, if not right. if not most, but we, 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 don't, Current, we don't know the ratio. We don't. I think the most recent estimate uh, I read of how... It was something from 30 to 60% of type 1A supernovae. But if you ask some people, they'll say it's all of them. If you ask some people, they'll say it's none of them. We're right. still arguing about these details. Right, right, right. And people, yeah, people like their models. And, yeah, of course. Uh, and that's, that's going to be debated for a while. But, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, you know, the... Um, the amazing thing is, you know, we very rarely get this in in, in astrophysics where you you predict something and then we see. No, and then we see it. normally we see something weird and we all race to explain it. Right, and yeah. then you then you argue over what it could have been. Yeah. Uh, but but if you already made the prediction uh, and it was it was really specific, you know, this yeah. uh, the actual you know when you looked at the spectrum and exactly you could see what, you know that you could see right. the parts of it where the the uh, ash was blocking the uh, and at the time. I wouldn't have bet on us discovering them because they're a little less bright than a typical supernova, but not a lot. So Mm -hmm. if they happened frequently, we would know. Um, It turns out we have found a few in archival data that we just 
didn't know what to do with. Right. It was considered an oddball. Right. And you did, we didn't know what and to do And also with them. another effect that I wasn't taking into account is they look the most different from a normal type 1 to a supernova very early on. Okay. And so it's oh, only so. really been in this modern era that we've caught them so soon after they, because they start off very dim and they grow brighter and then they get dim again. Right. But technological advancements with things like supernova cadence and just how faint we can see things have allowed mm-hmm. us to start catching them much, much earlier. Ah, so, so when you catch them at early times... We're you, more likely to see the you're, weirdness. You're more likely to see some of this behavior that only mm-hmm. happens at very early times. Right. Uh, and, and so it could be that there's some that they caught, the, you know, they caught at peak or something. Right, that either less extreme right. or in terms of how much helium was on their surface or just... Um, but presumably, if we've only even even given all of that, if we've still only seen six, and that does mean they're still pretty rare. Compared to some things, but not compared to others. Compared to Type One A supernovae, sure. Right. Um, compared to other transients, six since twenty eighteen is not so bad. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. There are some things that are much rarer than that. Um, so, what is next on the horizon for you? What are the next big questions to tackle? Ah, well. On a simpler term, I just started a faculty position. So next is figuring out how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But science-wise, again, I'm just sitting here trying to be ready for the incredibly rich discovery space Mm -hmm. we're about to embark into. Uh, As you said, JWST just launched. We're Mm -hmm. starting to learn about from that what happens at the very center of supernova explosions. Uh, and things like how they interact with their surrounding dusty environments. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about to start the LSST at the Vera Rubin Observatory. Mm-hmm. We have a number of other big telescopes and big satellites planned for the next decade or so. And all of that will give us things we hadn't been able to look into before and things we hadn't even dreamed of. Yeah, I mean, that's what a lot of astrophysics is. You kind of... Uh, we're kind of betting on that if you, you know, you point your telescope at something or you look in a way that we haven't been able to look before, you're just going to find things. And yeah. we usually win that bet when we do that. We we, <laughs> we usually discover things we didn't expect. Absolutely. Uh, I think for me in this new era, what I'm most excited about is being able to couple signatures that we see from those gravitational waves we talked about briefly earlier with photons that we're seeing from astrophysical transients uh, and simultaneously learn about the mass of the system from the gravitational waves uh, and things it leaves behind, like black holes, uh, with you know the explosion physics themselves that we get to see from the yeah, photons. That is very exciting that we're now able to like do things that to actually directly observe black holes and those, yeah. that that at black what, how what they're doing you know like we we're actually seeing things not only are we looking at them with the the event horizon telescope but we're also being able to uh, actually see black holes merging with uh, with LIGO and these are all those are very big developments mm-hmm. and I'm sure. Uh, that's going to just... Uh, you could have more than one episode of this podcast devoted to just that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Poland, for indulging us with your wisdom. <laughs> Thanks again for uh, having me here. I had a lot of fun talking science with you. I, will, I hope you will join us again sometime. Uh, I'm sure I will. <laughs> well, that was quite an interview. It gives you a sense of how exciting it can be to be a scientist and have one of your predictions actually come true. 
Well, hopefully I can keep finding impressive astrophysicists to talk to, maybe once a month? We'll see how I do. Thank you so much, Professor Pollen, and thank you to our listeners. We will see you next time. The Astrophysics Podcast is supported in part by the National Science Foundation under grant number AAG 2206-299. The music that you're listening to right now was written and recorded by Britton Ashford from her album Trotter. All songs are used with permission from the artist and producer. Look her up if you enjoyed it. This podcast is produced in beautiful Lafayette, Indiana by me, Paul Duffel, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Purdue University. 